I'm Vinny, and this is Learn Real Good. Nailed it. <laughs> what did we do? Well, we had a vacation. Everyone needs a vacation. Sure. Right? I think it's a basic part of, of, of human life. We need vacations. Yeah. We had a vacation last week's episode where we, you know, threw away the pattern and went rogue. But this week we're back. Just like vacation. I think it's still rogue. You don't want a vacation to last forever. It's you want that sweet, ro- sweet comfort of routine. We still don't have a routine. And we're back. Well, we're closer. All right. It felt felt right. I I I feel like no routine's the best routine. <laughs> do you feel that? Or do you, would you consider yourself a not routine person, Vinny? Uh, in the real world, there are some things let's where I it. need to have routine. Okay, otherwise, like, my structure falls apart. Okay, let's Just like a calendar. People well, want to calendar. Know. Like oh, I need to use my calendar. calendar. Yeah, I, if I don't put my tasks in a calendar. Yeah. They immediately evaporate from my brain. And yeah. so then I wake up in the morning. I'm like, all right, what do I have to do today? Mm. And if yesterday Vinny didn't put it in the calendar, mm-hmm. today Vinny's in trouble. That's true. Calendar. What are some things that you don't need routine for? That you're like, yeah, let's live by the seat of our pants. Uh, downtime. Downtime. I don't like. I'm just like, you know, like, all right, what do I need today? I'm really, I think I'm good at listening to what I need, whether it's quiet time mm. and reading or solitude, just like. You know, something more tactile where I'll sit with my, so I collect Magic the Gathering cards, I'll sit with my cards and sort them. And that's the really, that's something very physical uh, and, and tactile for me to play with. It's a shame this isn't a video podcast because viewers would see that your uh, microphone is currently perched on a D&D book on top of Magic cards. So if there's Correct. any question if Vinny um, has some nerdy pastimes, yeah. dare I say? Only nerdy pastimes. Only nerdy yeah. pastimes. Yeah, what about you, Katie? What, what do you do well with structure and do better oh, without structure? Uh, I love structure. Uh, yes. I'm a big routine person yes. in all aspects of life. And I think that's what drew me to improv. That's my place to sort of explore... <laughs> letting go mm. of of planning a little bit sort of flirting with that right. that ability without yeah. having to do it in any real stakes right. way and your favorite formats are narrative and musical to the most structured <laughs> forms of improv absolutely and guess how i react when when people initiate a song that's not part of the four forms we've rehearsed yeah yeah very well right no <laughs> no so i guess i even then yeah I you've you've impl- you've applied structure to the unstructured well we have structured this podcast yes we do which is a science comedy podcast Correct. yes uh, we, we combine just... science and yeah. comedy at the Finally. same time <laughs> yeah it's about time right what's happening is they're exploding together <laughs> they're exploding together okay um and uh yeah so in this show each episode mm-hmm. we shoot the breeze check okay check um, and then we're going to share some science facts, I love science and then facts. we're going to talk to our fantastic guest. Let's do it. Yeah. Well, we have. We already have one check on the board, man. What is it? Which one attention? was it? Which the, one the, did we do? Shooting the breeze. Did we have our guest? Uh, we should have. We should have put that in the calendar. So is you this, are we part of the structure or not? <sighs> this is causing me stress. Phase two. Thank God. Okay. Yes. Can we get to phase two, please? Some science facts. Science facts. facts that sounds great. Facts. I went first last week. Yeah. So. I should go first again. <laughs> do go, you want to? No, go ahead, please. So do you want me to go first, Katie? I would love for you to go first. I can't wait to hear this fact. All right, great. So have you ever heard of the Atacama Large Millimeter <laughs> Array? The ALMA. I think you know the answer to this. Yes, you're a big fan. No. Oh, no? I do not know it. I don't know that I'm not a fan. I've not no. heard of it. No. Okay, so it's a system of telescopes mm-hmm. in South America. Sure. Uh, 66 telescopes to be precise. So if you imagine one telescope looking at the sky, 
pretty cool. <laughs> but what if you could network a whole bunch of telescopes together to act as one giant Whoa. telescope? We don't have that somewhere? Well, that's what we that's what the ALMA is. Okay. It's a set of 66 telescopes that are networked together and act as a giant telescope. Whoa. Uh, looking at electromagnetic information from outside of the Earth, uh, from space, yeah. uh, in the millimeter wavelength. Oh, okay. Okay. Good one. Good wavelength. Good, it's a good, good wavelength. Good All right. So, a while back, there was some hot news about Venus, the planet. Uh-huh. All right. I don't know if you know this, Katie. Probably not, unless but... it was a science fact on the show. <laughs> so, they detected phosphine uh, in the atmosphere uh-huh. okay. of Venus. Okay, no, I did know that. Okay. And uh-huh. so, one of the things that's interesting about phosphine is that there are very few ways to make it in abiotic uh, processes Uh and so detecting phosphine in the atmosphere of venus was like okay we've got this result it's very surprising you know we we're not sure what to make of it but according to this data we are detecting this telltale signature of phosphine it's the news it's the subject of the new season of serial who put phosphine on venus yeah 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 well the implication being that if there's it, life. There's some biological process sure. that's existing uh, on Venus that's generating phosphine. They found it in quantities that cannot be explained by natural processes. That we know of. That we know of. Right. So these are the questions. So then people started like, all right, what's generally the assumption is there's an error here because like there's, of you know, we don't really assume that there's anything alive on Venus. So what are some of the errors? So some people put out a paper saying that there's a, Another chemical, sulfur dioxide, that has a line, mm. a chemical signature very similar. But then other people published it was like, no, there's mm. this, there's enough of a differentiation. Not mm. It's not similar enough to be explained away. Then it turns out the original study had a calibration error where they didn't expect it to be as bright because normally these telescopes look at things that are very far away. And so when you look at Venus, by relative measures, it's very, very bright. So they found a calibration. So to resort their data, recalibrate it, and rerun the results, the signal's still there. Mm. More diminished, but still present, not entirely erasable. So then now what they've done is like, all right, well, we want to look at it again with this telescope. So the ALMA telescope is like built mm-hmm. for this. It's like express, it's the biggest instrument in the world that can look at these kind of things. The problem is, because it's such a specific instrument and it's the instrument for this, there are too many requests in the queue that have been assigned. So we it won't be able to look at Venus again until that request comes back around. It's like the, the viewing time on that telescope is booked. But they built it for Venus. No, they built oh, it to look at everything in space at I that wavelength. See. Oh, and so man. they, you know, they book they book these things like a year plus in advance. And so it's like, all right, we're going to look at Venus. Oh, we did it. All right, next. Who's, oh, we're, I'm looking at this nebula. Great. All right, who's next? And so they book it out for a long, long time because they want you to prep. And so they're like, okay, well, the only real instrument that's really designed for this is that instrument. We do have other instruments. So other teams with smaller, lesser good instruments have been looking at Venus. Yeah. And they found a similar signal, too, at a very weak Mm. level. So they're like, oh, if we found zero, then that would be evidence against it. But if we're finding something there, it's still there. But the data isn't strong enough to really be definitive about it. So they're really going to have to, like, spend a lot of time just gathering Mm. more and more data. It's just a question of time. But what's really interesting to me about this is this is the scientific process in action. There's this really interesting result that's like, okay, we found phosphine. 
Could it be light? What are the sources? Is this a measurement error? And so all of this process is under underway right now. It's the real life. A, a strong claim has been made. The evidence has been both refuted and supported. And so now it's a question of like, what is the actual answer? And so, you know, one of these things about science being testable and repeatable, yeah. we're seeing it now. And I think it's really cool. You, I've never seen you more intense. Thank you. It's the hottest ticket in town for this telescope. I mean, Hotter than uh, Ares tickets. One of the things that's really <laughs> fascinating is that the upper atmosphere of Venus has the same temperatures and pressures as Earth. So it's not entirely out of the realm of the possibility that there's some Earth anal analogous organic process that's generating this. But even, I mean, is amount of phosphine, no matter how much it is, 25 gigatons of phosphine. Sure. Is any amount of phosphine going to be convincing enough? Like, don't you still have to get down there on the ground, start digging for some light? It's not good. It probably won't be on the ground. I mean, unlikely. Well, like you're you're getting uh, hung up on the wrong part. Don't we have to go to Venus? We would and have to go and, and collect things? some samples okay. of like what could possibly be generating yeah. it. But if you find evidence for that, yeah. then that the yes. funding for right. that experiment, you know, jumps the queue and priorities. Jumps the telescope queue. Yeah. Very cool. Thank so you, Vinny. Really Thank you for that very impassioned take Thank you. on the Alma. I'm, I'm a big fan of science. Your, your Alma mater. Good one. Ready for a fact? I would love to hear a science fact, Katie. Vinny, what, what's... Oh, I love these leading questions that you've got coming up. Yes, continue. <laughs> what seminal event happened about 12,000 years ago? Oh, that's easy. Yeah. Uh, the dinosaurs. 12,000 years 12, ago. 12,000, the dinosaurs. You di didn't let me finish. The dinosaurs yeah. were still decomposing. No, they continue to exist. 12,000 years ago? Yeah, and today. I don't think, oh, the birds? Yes. Oh, you were so disappointed. I really, birds are such a disappointing form of dinosaur. <laughs> Let's be honest. Let's get real here. They're I still think here. it's cool. I, birds They're are cool. They fly. Good job, birds. Okay. You know dinosaur. Hot takes. Birds are dinosaurs. 12,000 years yes. ago, what happens? What big thing happened? Uh, 12,000 years ago. Language? Uh, agriculture? I don't know. <laughs> Probably a lot of things, yeah, I guess. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was a terrible thing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I didn't, I didn't check my diary. This, let's try this another way. Uh, 12,000 years ago, Yes. Uh, most land mammals outside of Africa went extinct. <laughs> that was the seminal event you're referring to. For me, to? that's where my mind would go. Right, oh, yeah, very right. soon after. Okay, because the, the, these are one of these ice age one of these repeating. like famous extinction events. Yeah, what caused the extinction, Vinny? Uh, Do you know what the leading belief is for much, why twelve thousand? Think about what else was going yeah, on. Twelve thousand social media years. addiction. <laughs> social media addiction. You're not playing ball today. I'm sorry. So humans hunting. I, the reality is I know nothing about this. <laughs> okay, so humans were around okay. in North America 12,000 years okay. ago. And the popular belief is that they, they were, were hungry. largely driven to extinction by hunting. Okay. Over harvesting. We We've never done that before. Oh, definitely. Uh, definitely have. And it was definitely a contributing factor. However, mm -hmm. there's always been sort of another... Uh, another cause sort of hiding in the background oh. and that was changes to climate that were happening at okay. the same time. But we're not even talking about that. We're talking about something else humans did. Something not else humans did. To, to cause this extinction. This giant this land, news. North American land mammal yeah. extinction. Not just directly stabbing, stabbing them. them. Do you have no. guesses as to what else we were doing? Might be something that's really in the news. I got it, yeah. Bullying. Wildfires. What? Wildfires? Yes. So this is actually coming from not just across north america this is specifically talking about what happened 
to the large land mammals in California, which is a part of the world that has a lot of fire. Do you know why, Vinny? Uh, uh, dry. Yeah, yeah. So the, the type of biome you would call something like California is yes. like what you have in much of the Mediterranean okay. area, which is something called shrubland or chaparral. Chaparral. Yeah. Ooh. Ooh. yeah Hello. It's always my favorite chaparral. biome. Chaparral. That's where you have lots of, if you think of wine, wine is often uh, in these areas. So yeah. South, South uh, Africa oh, okay. as well would have a lot of this yeah. type of biome. It's good for those types of trees. Uh because trees like cork like trees, Calvin Klein. <laughs> chaparral, chaparral, cork trees are good at uh, evade, dealing with surviving through oh, fire. So you get lots a, of fire naturally because they're fireproof, uh, fire resistant. Oh. Yeah. Now California wasn't always shrubland. I knew that. So back when the humans were hunting lots of large mammals, yes, what we were also doing was lighting a bunch of fires intentionally. Why? Yes. To chase the animals. Well. Clear for farming. Uh, marshmallows. Clearing for farming is great. So this is kind of pre-farming, but uh, clearing brush just to move. Can you imagine moving through like thick, thick, thick forest? Just really fire to it? Shit, yeah. That That's is a lazy. Way to get rid of- that is oh, lazy. No, cut it down one by one. Yeah. Um, but yes, also to drive prey out of the forest, light a fire, they're all going to come running out the other side. Into your oven. Yum, but yum, also, yum, yum. interestingly, to deliberately yeah. allow plants that they liked to use for things like building, uh, making baskets. Uh-huh. If you burn down the trees. The those first things the, that come yes, back. Exactly. Oh, the pioneer species, I like to call them. Thank you. Good job. So this, all these wildfires actually changed California from being... More of a really Republican place into the Democratic to being the chaparral biome okay, cool. that it still is today. Now, do you know where we got the evidence? Where they got this evidence for for wildfires being an important part of this story? Where do we get most of our Fossil, evidence? Fossils. Yes, found where? Do you know California? You said California, already. Yes, but the chaparral district. Have you heard of the La Brea tar pits? Yes. Yeah. Okay. This tar though. So a lot of the evidence. Um, the reason why we're talking about this happening in California is because of the La Brea tar pit. So, okay. so sort of for for like forty thousand year period in Earth's history, what is now known as LA uh, was this bubbling vat of tar, basically, um, because of just leaking stuff out of the ground, and uh, animals would get trapped in it. And there's lots of exhibits mm. about about those tar pits, but they made fantastic samples. You could pull those animals out. They got preserved wow. nicely. So we have lots of good good examples of what was going on at this time. And they've since found, so so this evidence um, comes from finding like charcoal and other sort of deposits um, that were happening around the same time. They In the extinct. pits? Yeah, yeah. Whoa. Yeah. So it wasn't just over harvesting. No. We were doing other horrible things. <laughs> <laughs> Humans being horrible through time. Absolutely. But very pertinent. I mean, we're seeing, you know, wildfires uh, again re- re- wreaking havoc. Well, dear future humans, I hope California you find us in a tar pit and we apologize. <sighs> tough times. Tough, <laughs> tough times. Well, that's enough times. out of us. Yeah. No one wants to hear. silly facts. Yeah. No one listens no one to the show for no us. No for us. No. No. They're here for our, our guests. Guests. Yeah, and as they going should to be. Introduce our guests. Yeah, I would love to introduce our guest. This week's guest is Sasha McDowell, who is currently a PhD candidate in zoology at the University of British Columbia. She's using the fruit fly as a model organism to understand how the taste system detects salt. Ooh. Mm. Sasha loves exploring Vancouver with friends, and when her introversion kicks <laughs> in, she likes to read and do creative writing. Let's say hello to Sasha. Hi, Come Sasha. Come on down. 
Hi, hi. Thanks for having me. Welcome. Hey, Sasha, welcome to the show. Oh, it's an honor yeah. to have you. Thanks for making time away from the fruit flies. Yeah, they're very demanding. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, Sasha, tell us uh, uh, what's what's going on with fruit flies. Yeah, I like I think of a fruit fly, I think of my bananas that I kept out too long. Right, yeah. That's the usual uh, response I get when, when I say I'm studying fruit flies. <laughs> Sure. Yeah, so I'm actually looking at taste processing in fruit flies. Wow, why are, fruit flies, cool. why are fruit flies used as a model, a model organism so much? I know we use them a lot in genetics, all sorts of things. Like, why the fruit fly? Yeah, great right. question. What's so special about them? <laughs> yeah, who do they think they are? <laughs> so I think you mentioned I what I would say is the biggest benefit is the genetics. So you can mm. do a lot of really cool things in fruit flies that are a lot more difficult in say like a mammalian model organism although mm. i think we are getting better at the genetic techniques mm. but but yeah there's a lot of cool stuff you can do with manipulating different cells and then they're just they're kind of easy their their life cycles really quick mm. so you can get your results even faster with mice mm. sometimes you're waiting <laughs> ages to get them at right. the specific age and sometimes you're limited by the, the number of animals you can use with fruit flies mm. there's just plenty of them <laughs> right so yeah like how long does a fruit fly live like what's a general life cycle oh that's always the question people people <laughs> I would say I haven't tested that specifically, but like maybe a couple of months. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. I think yeah. they live surprisingly. I think people would guess they live like a day or two. Uh, yeah. Longer, I would have said right? like on the order of a week, but months is surprising for me. It also That's depends cool. on what temperature they're kept at too. Because sometimes oh. if you put them, so we have special incubators. So there's like a, 25 degree incubator and then we have one which is a little bit hotter that's 29 degrees celsius incubator and then one that's at 18 and if you put them in the really cool incubator they can live a lot longer and then if you put them in the really hot incubator yeah they die pretty fast <laughs> wow i should try this is that true for us man yeah. <laughs> air conditioned me <laughs> yeah and so You've got all these fruit flies, you're studying them and in a genetic way to understand how they taste salt. Is that what's happening? Yes. So I'm looking at, so the primary taste organ in the fruit fly is something called the labellum. <laughs> mm. um, so I'm specifically looking at the sensory neurons in that taste organ and I can look at what those neurons fire to what's the receptor in those neurons that's detecting the tastes and then i'll provide kind of some insights into just general mechanisms that hopefully translate to mammals mm -hmm. <laughs> wow so are the basic mechanics like I, I don't know about you but i don't think it looked much like a fruit fly like that's a pretty <laughs> distant relative yeah i mostly had you on to confirm i don't look like a fruit fly right correct okay is their basic taste system very similar to ours like they don't have taste buds they don't have a tongue but is it like at the neuron level it's basically the same thing like receipt receptor get stimuli send message neuron to your center yeah i think i think you're pretty correct so what i'm saying is specifically salt as you mentioned and so in mammals, we like a little bit of salt in our food, you know, on our fries, for example. Um, mm -hmm. But if we put too much salt in our meals, you know, if you're, you're getting too excited when you're cooking and you, you add way too much salt, <laughs> it's disgusting, right? right? And 
we see the same things in flies as well too. They like a little bit of salt, but then they'll start to avoid those higher concentrations of salt. Mm. And so there are these two connected pathways. So one is for, is kind of encouraging the consumption of salt, and then another pathway is discouraging that consumption. Mm -hmm. And so those two things are similar similar between uh, fruit flies and mammals. So why do we need salt anyway? Like presumably we can taste it because we need a certain happy Goldilocks amount of it. So why do we need it at all? And then we'll talk about why is too much bad maybe. So we need it for a bunch of things. One thing mm. is that it's it's really important for fluid and ion homeostasis, so the right balance of, for example, the plasma in our bodies. Um, it's involved in kind of like making sure that it's the correct volume. This is not my area of research, so <laughs> I'm going to repeat what I write in my introductions. For <laughs> You're nailing it. Yeah, yeah, You're perfect. It. And so we need it. Yeah, so it helps with, I guess, just correct fluid balance in our body. It's important for muscle and neuron excitability. So our, the ability for neurons mm. to fire, we need salt for that. We need it for absorption in our gut and reabsorption in the gut. And there's other things, but those yeah. are some of the big ones. Awesome. Very cool. And when I think of taste, yeah. I think of like my tongue yes. and it tastes like sweet, sour, salty, umami. Mm-hmm. Like, is there someone else out there studying fruit fly umami? <laughs> that is one modality. Honestly, probably. <laughs> that is one modality that we're still trying to understand. But we've studied sweet, bitter, salty, lactic acid taste oh. in fruit flies. Yeah. Amazing. They detect amino acids, so. And, like, this whole... This whole mechanism is also fascinating to me because also again most of my mental kind of framework here is testing people like so are there little like white stickers that go on a fruit fly's head with a little lead that goes to a machine like how do you make them that small that's my question so need pictures <laughs> so are you asking how am i studying the neurons yeah yeah how are you studying the neurons so um so i do something called calcium imaging um, so calcium imaging is when neurons are excited, when they're having fun, no, when, <laughs> when, when they're firing, there's this influx of calcium into the cell. So what scientists have done is they, they've made it possible for us to visualize that change in calcium. So they've connected that calcium increase with a genetically encoded fluorescent protein, GFP. Wow. And it becomes enhanced when the calcium increases and so we can see neurons firing mm. through fluorescence increases that's really cool and is so like the fruit fly brain i guess is relatively well mapped out considering how much it must have been studied at this point so that's like the big topic in the field right now too is like recently so far i just did my research on this only three mm -hmm. other organisms have had like their entire brains mapped out and so the fruit fly is like one of the latest that has had like the full connectome so all the neurons in the brain all the neurons in the nerve cord mapped wow. out and not that many organisms have had that done wait what are so what are the what are the other two there are three others one is oh, three others c elegans which is the worm yeah, classic the worm and then there's a big model one there's two other ones that i i didn't even I've never really heard of them. <laughs> one, okay. one sea squirt larva. Sea squirts. And nice. one's a marine annelid. So marine worm. 
So that's I, really cool. I'd, lo- I'd love to circle back. So we mentioned that there's a reason why. There's always a reason. There's a reason why for us, for a fruit fly, we detect and like a bit of salt, right? You mentioned a bunch of reasons why we need it. But why don't we want too much of it? You mentioned that we and fruit flies have an aversion to super high salt. Mm. But it does all those cool things. Why is too much salt bad for us or a fruit fly? Yeah, we need it in a very specific amount of salt. Too little isn't good. And then too much isn't great either. Mm. I mean, if you eat a load of salt, we're, we're going to start drinking a lot of water, right? <laughs> right. <Yeah. laughs> so I, there's mechanisms in our body to make sure that we, mm-hmm. we have the right balance. And that's also something I'm, I'm looking into too. Yeah. And so, okay. So are you, you're putting salt out, the fruit flies are coming <laughs> at it, and then you take pictures of their calcium brains, and then you're like, we did it. Oh, let me guess. Let me guess. Did you did you have like different rooms with different amounts of salt, and you measure like how much time they spend, and if they spend more time in the medium? No, no. Salt hang on, room? hang on. You have a small. We're guess you have a small. You have small McDonald's it. with fries, <laughs> and then you're like, all right, how salty? How many fries do they sure, order? Sure. What they salt? Order. Yeah, we got to make them go through the drive-through in little fruit fly cars. Okay, yeah. And then. No, I think Vinny got it. I think I think that's got to be it. Yeah. How do you test? How this? do you test this? I wish our experiments were that fun. <laughs> <laughs> little hats, little yeah, yeah. Hats. Oh, yeah. Oh. So, so yeah. Obviously, imaging the brain is one part of the research, and then the other part is looking at feeding behavior. Yeah, similar to the room idea, <laughs> we actually put them into like little vials, so they're like little containers, and then we give them two food options. So one could just be like water one is salt and then we label those two food options with different colored dyes so red and blue and then we let them you know make their decisions and then we freeze them <laughs> so, mm. so, so, so do say it too loud <laughs> it's okay it's okay the fruit fries aren't listening <laughs> yeah, yeah, sometimes they're, they're not on the board Sometimes when my apartment has a lot of fruit flies in it, I'm just like, uh-oh, they're organizing. <laughs> <laughs> They've heard about you. She We're is gonna... the one. We must destroy her. <laughs> Anyways, after we freeze them, um, because their cuticle is so transparent, we can look under just a normal microscope and see, based on the colored dye, which food option they were choosing. Oh. And so we know whether they're attracted to the salt or avoiding the salt and like if we manipulate certain neurons or receptors how that affects their salt feeding behavior oh Mm. so yeah so how how do you do did you do that as well did you manipulate their their neurons to see like ooh, when we excise this neuron they no longer know the difference and they're going to town on that salt did you test that as well yeah so for my first first part of my thesis I found a receptor that was expressed in this neuronal population that's involved in causing the flies to avoid salt. And we just, you know, went online, ordered some flies without this receptor. (laughs) As you do in the normal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) As you do in the fruit fly world. (laughs) Add that to your Amazon order. No problem. (laughs) Check out. Yeah. Um, And yeah, like the flies that didn't have that receptor, they they couldn't avoid the high concentrations of salt 
as well as mm. the control flies. Hmm. Yeah. yeah, that's a funny part of science that people do. If you're not in biology, you're not aware of like how you get these organisms. I remember I worked on salamanders for my master's. Right. <laughs> And I didn't, I ordered them from a company, a catalog like Sears, but for animal life. Um, and I got a call one day. They were at the airport. I don't know what I thought was going to happen. I thought they were going to show up at my door, just like everything else I order comes exactly to where I want it to be. And I had to like stop everything I was doing. And How many salamanders were there? To go to the, to go to the airport. To, to welcome my uh, my new guests. How many? I don't remember the okay, order a lot. size, but some of them were not happy because okay. they've been sitting at the airport. airport Anyhow, yeah. well, who is who loves the airport? Who, no one likes waiting not, at the airport. Yeah, not even a salamander. No, no, definitely not. So was was the goal here, Sasha, to sort of see like proof of concept to then try this calcium system on other things as well, or, or were we really interested in fruit flies in particular if they could detect salt? Um, I mean, calcium imaging has been used in bunch of organisms so it's not we were just using calcium imaging as a tool mm -hmm. to help us understand salt in fruit flies mm -hmm. and i'd say the interesting thing about that project was we know quite a bit about salt taste in mammals we know the receptor that causes us to eat a lot of salt that's the attractive portion mm -hmm. but we don't know the receptors for why we avoid salt like ah. th that hasn't been found in mammals so maybe finding it in fruit flies could give some clues uh -huh. you know like if we study the receptor and look at the amino acids and hmm. how how was it detecting this high concentration of salt maybe that could help help us find it in mammals so how do amino acids figure into this story <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I was just, just thinking. Just dropped in amino acids there. Are they salty? <laughs> Sorry, receptors. I'm thinking of the receptors and like how the receptors, okay. they're proteins. Receptors are yeah. proteins, oh, and then okay. amino acids are the building blocks. And right, right. How the receptors are built. I get it. I get it. Yeah. Hey, what's going on? We are Pull the Plug Podcast with myself, Mrs. Godzilla, and me, Justin G. Myself, Justin Briner, and me, Sarah M. Pull the Plug Podcast, it's a place where music fans, pop culture nerds, and people who love dick jokes come together each week. A place of worship, if you will. Check us out at ptppodcast.com for all your dick needs. Yeah, and so then, is is this goal to just kind of keep mapping out the fruit fly and like how this one system works? With the idea being like, we'll gain insight for other mammals and animals. I'd say it's a little bit of both insight into mammals drosophilus drosophilus fruit flies sorry <laughs> <laughs> fruit flies are um a good model organism for insects in general too right. so especially for pest control mm. um oh. that's also why people tend to stick to fruit flies as well if you want a model organism specifically for insects right. it's it's a good one and so then at the end the goal is to sell this research to doritos for bees Sure They'll that. pay a pretty penny for this information. <laughs> if I'm building a trap for fruit flies, how much salt do I have to sneak in there to piss them off? That's what I've been wanting to ask you. Exactly well, if you put too many... much, your trap isn't going to work. No, it'll kill them eventually. <laughs> I trap yeah, them through hypertension. They're not smelling the salt. You just give them a heart attack. Yeah, I want them to suffer. Yeah, that's correct. I think the, be the best thing for traps is using something that they can smell. So usually it's mm. apple cider vinegar. 
you right. used in fly traps. Yeah, why is vinegar the hot thing to smell? I guess fermenting means like rotting, and rotting means food for them. And they're sick, yeah. twisted minds. <laughs> Those sickos. <laughs> These freak show Fresh fruit flies. No, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Rotting yeah. fruit. Yeah. Yeah, why don't we call them rot flies? Am yeah. I right? <laughs> yeah, why don't we call them rot flies, Sasha? <laughs> I don't know. We should, we should kind of promote a name change. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So th- I'm imagining this is probably like a chapter of your research, right? Yes. You're probably doing... So what are some other things you're looking at? Is it other aspects of taste in flies or, or completely different? So I'm looking at modulation. So that what? is... <laughs> so if you think about it, like, like I mentioned before, if we eat a lot of salt, we're going to A, stop finding salty food attractive (laughs) (laughs) and B start drinking a lot of water and so there's these different things that our body does to make sure that we have the right amount and it's the same in fruit flies if we give them a diet with a lot of salt they'll start avoiding salt afterwards if we give them a diet that lacks salt they're they're going to start becoming even more attracted to it Hmm. and so I'm trying to understand how those neurons are changing Hmm. so maybe they're increasing their responses to salt when the fly needs it or maybe they're decreasing the responses when flies Hmm. don't need salt so i'm looking at how it's changing based on what the fly has eaten before very cool now this is a question i can't believe is taking me this long to think (laughs) up which is does does no does does your thesis have a, a joke name (laughs) <laughs> like what would be the joke name for this thesis i'm trying to think uh, of like salty flies feeling salty yeah salt on your flies would you like flies with that? yeah salt. would you like flies with that salt we could write it for you for a small fee yeah okay <laughs> mission, mission you all <laughs> yeah it seems, it seems right for it yeah for that. yeah fruit fly salt i like it do you know so ultimately i'm, I'm sure there's human applications to all this you're probably not working on you're focused on the the rot flies um (laughs) but for do you know if there's humans if it's a thing for humans to be like missing those receptors for salt are there people going around who can't detect salt not just from covid covid tongues (laughs) but the non-salties we call them the non-salties and would that have health implications if you couldn't taste salt i don't i haven't heard of that before Mm. but i think one area of research that people are most interested in is if we've grown up eating a load of salt and um all of the the health impacts because of the amount of salt we're eating and you know there's some people who just eat a lot of salt and it's Mm -hmm. their body isn't even telling them okay you should slow down (laughs) don't eat as much salt but you just keep eating more and more and so what's kind of going wrong with that modulation i mentioned before that's Mm. causing people to just keep consuming salt even though it's way above what should be in their body yeah i think you get it feels like you get acclimated like the same Mm -hmm. way you do with like spicy food like i feel like i came i came from a a moderate salted home i think we were salty people (laughs) and i add a lot a fair amount of salt to my cooking like from from cooking shows you know you salt each step but i've been to people's homes who don't have salt right and oh. so I'm like, well, I'm not that person. I'm not not adding salt for sure. Yeah. But yeah, I think you just get used to it. You get accustomed to having. But yeah, at the, at the neuronal level, something must be going on there. Mm-hmm. Now, so you're a PhD candidate in zoology. How mm-hmm. did that come about? 
So, okay, zoology. So I did a biology for my bachelor's of science at McGill, mm -hmm. and I really liked animal behavior. I liked the neuroscience as well, mm -hmm. too. And then I just went online and looked for a bunch of professors in Canada <laughs> who were doing animal behavior and kind of neuroscience uh, stuff. And I found the lab I'm at right now, and I'm pretty happy. <laughs> That's great. I mean... I, I I mean when I did my masters I had a similar problem. I was like I want to I want to work on something either astronomical or particle and then I found that there was a group doing particle physics from space I was like well that's perfect uh, and so you know what it's very funny like sometimes I'm like I'm not exactly sure what I want to do and you just look things up just kind of like thumbing through the phone book of what yeah. research is happening in Canada or beyond and you're like yep that's the thing. Yeah. How did they get you enticed to the rot fly? Because I imagine <laughs> I'm calling it that until it catches on. Because um, like when I was a student, I also took a uh, be animal behavior class was like, this mm -hmm. is the coolest. Um, and that was sort of the topic for my, uh, to a large degree, my honors thesis was on uh, bird behavior. But birds are pretty obviously, no, I'm not shitting on the flies, but they're, they're cute. They're an easy sell, right? Those macro fauna. How'd you get sold on flies for research? Yeah, I, I agree with you. I was in the beginning, I was like, oh my gosh, flies are so boring. Why would I want to study them? I want mm. mammals. I want birds. I want to do cool yeah, animals. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mammals are the hot animals. Yeah. <laughs> But then I I realized the reality, especially mm -hmm. neuro neuroscience, where you have to sacrifice the animals at the yeah. end of the day. And I became best friends with that animal doing behavior with them. Um, and then, you know, with flies, I'm just like, I'm doing a service. Yeah, yeah, yeah I think you're right. I think, yeah. You want to pick the repulsive, horrible animals. Yeah. No, that's a very good thing to, because that's something that people don't think of when you're working with animals. You often yeah. have to, have to euthanize them at the end. And yeah. that, the further you go up the vertebrate ladder, the harder <laughs> that gets. gets tough. But also, like the logistics as a researcher, you need the amount of permission you need to work on. I never worked on mammals. Can we talk about this? Because I think there's like in the general public, I don't know if there's a real conception of well, what you have to go through to work with any kind of animal. Yeah, well, what what animal care procedures do you have to go through working with fruit flies? Let's start there. Oh, what do you mean procedures? Yeah, <laughs> the answer is none, because no one cares about the, the well-being of insects. Exactly. When you're working with, like, I don't know mammals. Mammals are going to be way more work. But for birds, for amphibians, for most vertebrates, so things with a backbone, yes. uh, you need to, like fill out a bunch of forms to get permission to work on them. And they ask questions like... Who's they? What? Who's they? So the animal care committees. So universities and research institutes will have people who read these forms to say this is a legitimate use of life. And you basically always have to kill them at the end. Just because it's not... It's for the greater good of the planet. It's better to these animals that have been manipulated. It's better for them to not rejoin populations mm -hmm. for all sorts of reasons. They might die a long, you know, a, a prolonged painful death because of their injury or and how they've been treated or have an effect on the other organisms that haven't been manipulated. That's just sort of how, how that world works. But you need a lot you need to explain why you need that many. Why do they need to be alive? Why couldn't you use a simpler organism? It's a lot it's it's 
because I like to mention this because scientists often get pictured as, you know, we're just murdering all these mice right. and rats, but it's, yeah. it's not, I mean, a lot of animals die and that's not, you know, a happy thing, but it, also know that it comes after a lot of thinking yeah. and planning and yeah. reduction of harm as much as possible. For sure. But right. flies, as logistics wise, that's not fun, <laughs> writing those, those forms. If you're working with insects, eh, no one cares. <laughs> yeah. Go for it. Thank you. Thank you for your service is what they say after that. <laughs> Absolutely. So so what was little Sasha like? Were yeah. you always interested in little animals? Yeah, I was a nerd from <laughs> a very You're in a safe age. space. It's okay. Yeah, yeah, you're in a nerd safe space. Yeah, I I was always like in, in the garden looking at yeah. animals. I was obsessed with, you know, David Attenborough documentaries. Nice. nice. And yeah, like doing science stuff at school, uh, that was me. <laughs> Very cool, absolutely. What were some of your the animals you played with in the in the garden? Yeah, what are some animals Do you, you observed? Cool animals. So I'm from the Caribbean. Hmm. So let's. I'm trying to think of the cool, coolest tropical. <laughs> they don't have to be cool. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, there would always be like millipedes about. Ooh, those yeah. were those were pretty fun. They're cool caterpillars. There were these really big snails. They're called African snails in the Caribbean. Wow. Um, how big are how big are we talking? Uh... <laughs> like like a fist? Oh Jesus Christ! Wait, what? She's she's measuring yeah. what's like the size of a human head. Yeah. But you were small. Yeah, maybe they were just regular. The, the tiny size of your torso. <laughs> <laughs> maybe because you were small, the snails seemed bigger. No, I think these are actually pretty giant. I like. I think they're called wait, giant African snails. Yeah. I, I, well, they're suggesting that they might be large with a name like that. <laughs> wow, I can't imagine a snail that giant big. Giant African land snail. I'm yeah. googling. I'm googling. Wow. Oh yeah, they're quite large. Oh no. They take up like a, a human hand. They're like a hefty, like a puppy. Oh wow, like a softball. Yeah, like a, soft, a softball a big, size, big, a big softball yeah. size snail. I'm not. I don't know if that's their maximum. That's size. what do they eat? Like humans, coconuts. Rot flies. Banana bunches. I think they were a huge problem to a lot of crops, but I, I don't know which crops. Oh, right. <laughs> Classic snail. Classic. Yeah, they're, are they an invasive species? Yes, they're an invasive species. I yeah, African is. snails in, in the Caribbean? <laughs> I know they don't belong. That's a non-native, Vinny. Okay, you're talking to an invasive species researcher. It doesn't mean they're invasive. Thank you. You thought you had me, but you didn't. Um, so... <laughs> Um, what's what's next for Sasha? Yeah. You're, you're not you're not finished your PhD, but do you see yourself yeah. sticking with neuron neurons and taste, or where do you think you see yourself going with your research? Yeah, I'm trying to finish up a PhD, and then we'll likely apply for some postdocs. Mm-hmm. Haven't been dissuaded from academia just yet. <laughs> Good, but give it time. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, don't listen to the haters. You know, I've what I've learned in life is in every career path, there's people who are like, this sucks. And it's like, well, thank you for that. It's all it's subjective. Not for you, yeah, it's mm-hmm. also like everyone's going to have a different preference. There's mm-hmm. no right or wrong way to go through it. Yeah. Some people are like, yeah, I love it. Some people are like, no, thank you. And that's okay. Make that decision for yourself. Voice. Make that decision for yourself. huh? I'm going to ask you, Sasha, you mentioned you're an introvert in your bio. <laughs> yes. I, I'm a very intense introvert. And, I, and it makes me think, 
you're still in academia. How do you handle conferences, which are these meetings where there's lots of like small talk as an introvert? For yeah, my particular flavor of introversion, it is a, literally what I would picture hell to be. But I'm wondering <laughs> if you're also an introvert. How do you, how do you handle conferences? Maybe you like them. I'm curious. I would say I haven't gone to many big conferences because of COVID. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah fair enough. And... I'm actually going to go to my first big conference in October. So I'll probably have an nice. answer for you okay. after yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we'll add it as an addendum. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's true, though. I, there is certainly, like, the balance between doing research in a lab, which can be kind of solitary, yeah. versus, like, working as part of a collaboration, part of a team, which isn't solitary at all. Like, how do you balance that? Yeah, I'd say when I'm feeling social, I'll do lab work during the week. When I'm feeling antisocial, that's what weekends are for. Uh-huh. uh-huh. <laughs> right. You're holding time. <laughs> Just you and the flies. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and you mentioned you do creative writing. What kind of creative writing? Are you writing poetry? I mean, are you writing stories? Yeah, sometimes I'll... Okay, I'm not a journaler. I wouldn't... I'm not like a... You know, there's some people who do daily journals. That's, oh, yeah. That's not me. It's amazing. <laughs> but I will, like, if I <laughs> if I feel like I've learned something in my journey, I might, I might write about it. So calcium imaging, oh. for example, was a nightmare to learn because mm. you had to, like, dissect. Like, fruit fly brains are small. <laughs> <laughs> I How to, do you di- you don't dissect that with your hands? Yeah, you must be we, a robot to do that. Oh my god. We have we have no no. I wish we have like little sharpened forceps, and you have to you have to have wow. crazy dexterity in order to make sure that you don't kill wow. the fly. You're able to. Whoa! Whoa what the flies alive when you're doing this? Yeah. <laughs> wow. Wow. Um, how wow. often would you accidentally kill it and then say an expletive? Do you feel? Oh, there. Hundreds have really. Yeah, wow. I know, it's heartbreaking. I mean, that's that's got to be a very specific, specialized skill. Yeah, yeah. You know, you go through, you know, putting it to sleep with with fly nap or using fly nap for this procedure, doc. <laughs> no, oh uh, yes, there's C- so we use CO two to knock out flies. Okay. Um, and then they'll wake back up once they're off of the CO two. But yes, calcium imaging learning that technique drove me insane. Ugh. But my supervisor was pretty chill. He was just like, keep trying, even though I had mm. nothing to show for. And then finally, I nailed it, and I got, I got the hang of it. And I don't know, I just decided to write about that whole experience. And it was just, that's wow. really cool. It was cathartic. <laughs> so yeah, was that something you kept, or did you put that in like a blog or something? That's I accessible. kept that one. <laughs> But who knows? Maybe it'll go somewhere. Maybe there's some other future research. Like, man, I wish I had someone to help me with this. It's funny because like when I think of, so I I teach at college and all our labs are like rigged for perfection. So like either we give them fake results. We're like, oh, you did it perfect again for their ego and just to go through the process. But that's not life, right? This is what what Sash is describing with the, you know, it's much more like it. You try something, you have no output. It, if you're sort of a perfectionist achiever, it feels like you've done nothing because right. you have no tangible output that's usable. And like mm-hmm. getting through that, being resilient, 
being yeah. resilient through that frustration, I think, is a top necessity for for scientists and I guess most for most people. Life, I yeah. think you know uh, accepting progress as a mm. result. Yeah. Right. It's not about the end. It's it's not the destination. No, here we go. It's the journey. journey. <laughs> but but it's true. Like we underestimate the yeah. value of progress versus like oh we got it perfect. No, well you got better at it. Well, That's if you think of our it. education system, right? That's right. not what we do. Right. You do a thing, you get a mark, you move on, right? Yeah. Like and when you're sort of trained in that way, this idea of accepting what's seen as a failure or a lack of a result is really hard. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Especially in the phd stage too because because mm. like the end goal is paper but that takes yeah. forever to get to so right. yeah <laughs> yeah you have to yeah, if it feels like you don't have results right it's like well there goes that paper that i had planned <laughs> yeah exactly um so oh, yeah boy. i like i like having some creative writing outlets just for you know going along the journey absolutely it makes you a better writer and i mean there's a lot of writing in science yeah. so that's a great way to process what you're yeah. what you're doing absolutely well, Sasha, this has been phenomenal. Thank you so much for taking time away from the rot flies to educate <laughs> us on what's going on with their taste buds. And good luck with the rest of your PhD. Yeah, thanks, Sasha. Oh, Great talking to you. Thanks for having me. Well, that was incredible. That was amazing. Imaging fly brains is amazing. You know, for the, a lot of that conversation, I was like, this is so cool. I, I should have done insects for the, the, uh-huh. the voiced issues with working with yeah. vertebrates. Yeah. But the second she started talking about <laughs> dissecting, dissecting tiny brains yeah. while they're alive yes. and need to continue to be alive. Yeah. That sounds yeah. really difficult. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's uh, I think video gaming would be a good <laughs> skill like that. Little manual dexterity. Oh my gosh. And your eyes. And your vision. Yeah, you... You need, need that good, telescope. Get that all get that telescope t- <laughs> on the fly. That's for brain. radio waves, but that's okay. Well, I was trying to make links, yeah, man. No, it worked. It worked. Well, we learned a lot today. We learned a lot. We learned about the telescopes. We learned about the telescopes. Learned about extinction of large land mammals yep. in California. Do you do wildfires. In part to wildfires lit by people. Thank you, Vinny. Thank and you, wildfires. Of course, wildfires. lots about <laughs> rot flies or yeah. fruit flies. And tasting and salt. Up. Yeah. That's fascinating. It made me want salt. I know. I, yeah, I want something chips. salty. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're yeah, yeah. Chips, so, after so, this. chips time. Send them on our socials, Vin. If you're interested in following us on social media, check us out at LRG Pod on Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok. We also have a YouTube channel now. Uh, just look up Learn Real Good Podcast. We have our science facts there, some shorts. So if you missed some earlier episodes, the short little videos, just take a listen. And if you are a STEM student who would love to be a guest, well, why don't you email us? Just send us a little What's email. The email address? It's learnrealgoodpodcast at gmail.com. That's learnrealgoodpodcast at gmail.com. And if you're enjoying this, hey, tell <laughs> yes. a friend. Yes. Spread Learn, the spread word. Spread the word. Tell them, like, hey, I heard this really fun podcast. They talked about rot flies. <laughs> Which I Googled. They don't exist. They don't exist. They're full of shit. Yeah. <laughs> yeah fair enough. Fair you know enough. what? Email us that. I would yeah. love that email yeah. as well. Um, and you can rate, review, and and subscribe yes. to our podcast wherever podcasts are written sold for and free. subscribed to. Yeah. Well, thank you, Vinny. Thank you, Katie. Thank you, Sasha. Yes, thank, thank you. you Sasha. Thank you, all the flies and other animals who've given your life for this research. And uh, we'll see you next time. Take care, everybody. Bye bye. Bye bye.